You've written extensively on sexuality and identity. Uh, your book, Changing Our Minds, is uh, the go-to resource I recommend for folks who are wrestling with these issues um, around sexuality. You know, how do they talk about it? How do they understand it? Um, but if you think about how rapidly our culture and many of our church traditions have altered their perspective on these topics over the last two decades, it's pretty amazing. Um, and yet there's a large swath of the Christian population that does not fit into an open theological perspective on sexuality and identity. From, from an ethical standpoint, how do we talk about sexual sexuality and identity, especially with people who just aren't there? Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter, so each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Andy Hale, your CBF Podcast host, and this year we're celebrating our seventh year of the podcast, bringing you even better interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online, share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Pasadena, California, Louisville, Kentucky, Beaverton, Oregon, and Frankfurt, Germany. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We want to give a special shout out to some of our listener supporters, including Caroline Bell, Trip Hawthorne, Cindy Foldenlore, Bill Johnson, Carson Fushi, Ralph Stocks, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. This podcast is presented to you by Central Seminary. A historic Baptist seminary founded in Kansas that now is diverse, cross-cultural, and ecumenical with a significant global footprint. Leading with the values of community, empathy, growth, and tenacity, Central Seminary equips students with the theological knowledge, spiritual insight, and practical skills needed to lead in an ever-changing world. We cultivate an inclusive, multi-language community of reflection where critical thinking and discernment are welcomed and encouraged. Central offers numerous graduate degrees and certificates, including Doctorate of Ministry in Creative Leadership, Master of Arts in Counseling, Certificates in Chaplaincy Studies, and Peace and Justice Ministries, and much more. Most programs are offered fully online. To learn more, visit cbts.edu or search for Central Seminary Kansas City. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Dr. David Gushy. David is a distinguished university professor of Christian ethics and the director of the Center for Theology and Public Life at Mercer University. He's the author of numerous books, including Changing Our Mind and After Evangelicalism. David, thank you for joining the conversation. Thanks for having me back, Andy. It's good to be with you and your listeners again. Yeah, so I was telling you uh, pre-record, uh, you're you're now joining the rarefied uh, group of the three for club, you know, three times on the podcast, which is, it just shows the amount of grace you have in your life that you're willing to sit down and talk with me three times and do it to yourself yet again. <laughs> well, it's a, it's an honor to be on, on your podcast three times. Um, 
And maybe there'll be a fourth next year when another book comes out. We'll see. Yeah. So let's go right there and catch it up with you. I was, I was, you know, giving you a somewhat of a, a you know, uplifting a hard time beforehand. The fact that you, you've had two books written during the pandemic and you're working on a third one, you know, uh, some of us haven't even released one. So uh, you, you've been busy. Um, what's been inspiring you to write so much? Um, well, you know, I would say that, that there's been a transition in my career since I wrote Changing Our Mind in 2014. And before that, I was ethics guy. And after that, I was controversial guy who wrote about LGBT inclusion and got booted out of evangelicalism. And so I did, you know, a couple of books that were kind of processing all of that. Like my book, Still Christian, was a memoir. And then after evangelicalism, which we talked about last time. But now I'm, I'm returning to ethics proper, you might say, uh, with this Introducing Christian Ethics book. Um, though, though it's now, I would say everything for me now is on the other side of what do people who no longer identify as like Southern Baptists or even denominationally or as evangelicals, what, what do we believe now? So I'm kind of in a post-evangelical space. Uh, and so that's what, that's what this intro book is. And uh, just a little tease for your listeners, the next book is going to be called Defending Democracy from Its Christian Enemies. And uh, this may be the first time that's been uh, publicly revealed, but hey, you get to break the story. And it's with Erdman's and it's going to be about essentially Christian authoritarianism on the march around the world. So, mm -hmm. so that is kind of in preparation for the 23-24 election cycle some of the scary developments in our political life, not just here, but around the world. Well, but anyway, I love writing and, uh, and the pandemic did have me home more. Almost all travel was canceled for two years and I uh, sat at my desk and I wrote stuff and it's been, it's been good. It's almost like a sabbatical, almost like a two year sabbatical. Well, hopefully the folks at you know Mercer aren't listening to this and they're like, hold on a second. We, we maybe get, have to take back some of the money we paid you since it was a sabbatical for this whole time. But uh... <laughs> I was teaching my classes, but yeah. you know, it was a lot less, uh, getting on airplanes and going places. And um, so anyway, anyway, uh, I think they'll keep paying me. I hope. Yeah. All right, let's, uh, let's jump into this new book, Introducing Christian Ethics. This book examines um, a, a plethora of, of current issues from a Christocentric view. You wrote, ethics examines the answer that people give to the question, how should or we live? Um, this is the one big question, and it has exercised the minds and hearts of pretty much every human being at one time or another. Why was now the time to write an anthology on Christian ethics? Um, what initially motivated the book was, um, uh, I looked like I was doing my last intro to Christian ethics class at McAfee School of Theology at Mercer, and I felt like I had a choice between using the notes that I had essentially been using for 10 years, or kind of summoning myself to, to revisit all of those themes and offer a fresh take, and so I thought, Let's, let's do this like in last lecture format. And so if I had one more shot to, to do a lecture on um, war or on the environment or on moral theory or uh, on justice, what would I say? 
And you know, that less le last lecture format is kind of popular uh, and the other people have done it. And I found it uh, a really cool way to motivate me and summon me to, um, to some fresh thinking. And I, I then delivered these lectures to uh, students at McAfee. And then we, you know, we recorded them and, and made this kind of multimedia book that, um, that is, is now out. But just more broadly, you know, a lot of your listeners will know me for um, Kingdom Ethics with Glenn Stassen, my beloved late friend and teacher. Um, though Glenn died in 2014, we brought out a second edition of Kingdom Ethics in 2016, but kind of, you know, I'd say six years later, I had some new things to say uh, about ethics and, and in, in fully in my own voice. And I felt like now was the time uh, to do that, especially for this post-evangelical audience that has been kind of gradually developing from my work. And so those are some of the things that went into this, into this project. Let's talk about the source of morality uh, from a Christian perspective. Obviously, uh, we can do an entire podcast series just around this topic. So briefly, what do you believe are the sources of morality for Christian ethics? Um, fundamentally, I would start by saying there's a question, and that is, um, how should we live? And you already said that quoting the book, but how should we live if we claim that Jesus Christ is our Savior and Lord? And um, so, so Jesus is the central point. How do we follow him faithfully? And so in terms of sourcing Christian ethics, the answer is any resource that helps us to think clearly and faithfully about what it means to follow Jesus should be on the table for us. Now, traditionally, Protestants uh, have have followed you know the scripture principle and says it's scripture or even scripture alone that provides the resources for answering that and all questions theologically or Christianly. But I, in the book, I argue for uh, a somewhat broader range. We must always be paying attention to tradition and using our God-given rational, empirical, scientific, intellectual uh, abilities and. The, the results of scholarship and, and learning over uh, collective learning over many millennia, um, learning from life, learning from experience, listening to the Holy Spirit, paying attention to our neighbors, reading the newspaper. There's a lot of sources that inform uh, the task of learning how to follow Jesus faithfully. It's more of an art than a science, and uh, but that is how I would essentially answer that question. So what I'd like to do, um, you know, for, for fun, I, I kind of look back at my Christian ethics textbook from my undergraduate philosophy and religion uh, major coursework, and the topics were covered uh, were, were uh, suicide, fornication, cohabitation, homosexuality, abortion, AIDS, and some stuff on genetic cloning. Um, that was 25 years my. ago. So okay i have some yeah. commentary about that yeah so you know that was, that was 25 years ago uh what, what's changed i'm saying this somewhat tongue-in-cheek but what, what's changed that we need to cover uh you know since since back then well one thing i noticed about that list i could probably guess who that textbook was um by but um in conservative evangelicalism 
there has been a fixation on, let's call it personal, sexual, and bioethical moral questions. And that list, boom, there it all is, right? Um, uh, and I think that that is a mistake. Those issues, the ones that you named briefly, are part of the, uh, the issue matrix that we must deal with. But um, so is war, environment, um, economics, um, uh, you know, marriage, anything related to how do we live in the individual or social arena, government, policing, uh, violence in general, uh, the role of the state. So, um, so the other thing is, is that ethics is perhaps more visibly than many other theological disciplines. Ethics is affected by changes in technology and society and culture. The Bible doesn't change, but the way issues come to us changes. Um, as laws change, as technology changes, as cultures change, we end up being faced with uh, new new dimensions of, of sometimes old moral challenges and also sometimes technology and culture presents new moral challenges that weren't even on the agenda of anybody 25 years ago um, uh, because they, it was just not something that anybody was thinking about or even the technology didn't exist. I wonder if you're honest, uh, what, you know, when you were pursuing your PhD at Union, what were some of the hot uh, ethical topics of the day? Uh, Union, uh, New York in the late 80s, early 90s um, was um, pretty similar to probably what it is today. A lot of focus on uh, racial justice. I didn't even mention race yet. I don't. I didn't hear race on that list from that textbook that you read. Interesting. Um, race, uh, gender equality, um, homosexuality was on the table already by then in the late '80s. Obviously, um, uh, liberation theology, economic justice, environmental concerns were on the table already by then. Um, Basically, you might say justice issues as opposed to personal morality or bioethical issues tended to dominate. And that is essentially not change. It's something of a split. You know, conservative evangelicals tend to focus on the sexual and bioethical issues, and more progressive Christians tend to focus on the social justice issues. Hmm. Let's pick out some of these topics uh, that you've covered from the book. Um, Here's one I've never thought we'd have to talk about from a Christian perspective, uh, truthfulness. You wrote, systemic lying from elected government leaders, torrents of disinformation and misinformation on social media, ideologically fractured accounts of reality, the loss of social norm of truth-telling, the abandonment of virtue to truthfulness. This is where we find ourselves in many nations today. Why is truthfulness so difficult uh, from a Christian perspective right now? Um, in Kingdom Ethics, we did have a chapter on truth, and, and I'm glad that we did. Um, but as I looked at that chapter from, I mean, that original book was, what, 19, no, was it 2003? Yeah, 2003. We wrote it in the late 90s. But, you know, 
truth does not as a, as a and truthfulness does not show up as an issue in in most ethics textbooks and when it does it tends to be casuistry uh argumentation about when is it okay to lie if the nazis are at the door you know and you're hiding jews are you allowed to lie to them stuff like that um but i would say uh in watching the torrent of lies um uh, during the Trump years in the US from the very top of the government uh, has, has driven a lot of us back to this, the, the centrality of truth telling in interpersonal relationships um, and in public life. Um, the association of rampant lying with tyranny and uh, authoritarianism um, uh, and the concept of covenant, which is an important theme in this book, stronger than in any of my previous ethics books, I think. Covenant, part of the covenant that binds people in interpersonal and in communal life is the covenant that when I speak to you, I am speaking truthfully to you, I am not lying. And that without it, relationship is impossible. So um, uh, tyrants and wannabe tyrants uh, have learned that if you can manipulate people's uh, perception of reality by, by bathing them in lies, you can accomplish goals that would otherwise not be able to be accomplished. So, um, so it, the, the chapter deals with the character quality of, of truthfulness, as in as we're supposed to be truthful people, our lives characterized by integrity, covenant keeping, promise keeping, and truth speaking. Um, but also the, the moral norm against lying uh, and the reason why that's such an important part of, of human uh, existence. So I'm glad that chapter is there. And it, it does respond, I think, especially to the, lie, the lies that we have been bathed in um, in recent years in, in the U.S. One of the, the layered uh, topics that you hit on here that certainly gets to kind of our political ethics um, is a re-examination of our ethics around Earth and, um, and why that's needed now more than ever as global warming is becoming a reality of our everyday lives, though not an accepted reality by many American evangelical Christians. Um, in many ways, the Bible has been used as a source of justification of ravaging and pillaging the earth for its profitable resources, while at the same time, scripture contradicts that very notion. So first, where do we go to for a source of ethics on creation care? And, and second, how, how do people leading local congregations talk about this, this aspect from a spiritual formation standpoint? Um, the, this is a really good example of an issue that I mean, the Bible hasn't changed, but our interpretation of the Bible, I think, has been distorted in the West since especially the Industrial Revolution as um, essentially a, a pillaging, a using and abusing, exploiting and abandoning, commercializing and commodifying of all things material, all earthly things. Um, has come to dominate the industrial capitalist uh, mindset. And, and there were people, still are, who are able to read in like the dominion mandate uh, of Genesis 1 uh, 
justification that the earth exists for humans and we're free to do whatever we need to it so that we can prosper as we understand it. Um, that's still out there. Also, but it's very damaging. We now see that. Also, certain theological assumptions or readings of scripture that suggested that God would not allow us to do um, uh, irreversible harm to the planet, uh, that God would protect us from ourselves or that we don't have that kind of power. Uh, and so we can just relax and trust that there will always be spring, summer, fall, and winter, and that life will be sustained by God's providential care. I think what the scientists and the data are telling us is that human beings uh, quite uh, cavalierly, but for, for a long time, not really knowing what we were doing, are changing the, the climatic conditions on the planet so that that temperature range, environmental uh, conditions that we have depended on for several thousand years for the civilizations that we have built around the world, that we are altering that. So that's a really good example where if all you had was the Bible, it should have been possible to have a more stewardship oriented or earth care oriented ethic. But the it took a paying serious attention to to the environmental movement and to and environmental science and the evidence of our eyes and of our of our uh, those devices that enable us to to know what's going on, you know, the climatologists, the meteorologists, the people who measure the temperature on the atmosphere. We had to listen and a certain kind of political conservative evangelicalism still refuses to listen, but the evidence is really accumulating all around us that we are. We are embarking on an experiment with the future of the planet and the future of not just the other species, but ourselves. And Christians should be a part of the solution, not part of the problem. And uh, the chapter attempts to outline some of that and to call for a more gentle relationship with the planet that we all depend on. This podcast is presented to you by CBF Church Benefits. At CBB, your benefits are our ministry. For 25 years, CBF Church Benefits has proudly served the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, providing retirement benefits and insurance services for CBF-affiliated church ministries and staff, along with CBF field personnel in Atlanta and around the world. CBB helps simplify the administrative burdens of your retirement plan, allowing you and your ministry staff to focus on your ministry. CBB can also help you maintain your overall benefit package, including life and disability benefit and international medical insurance for international missions. Through generous philanthropic support, CBF Church Benefits recently launched the Financial Wellness Initiative. This new initiative offers ministers the opportunity to receive financial relief grants, financial education experience, and financial planning services. Please visit CBF Church Benefits website at churchbenefits.org to learn more about CBB, our benefits, and the financial wellness opportunities designed to help you thrive in your mission and ministry. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. 
There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. You've written extensively on sexuality and identity. Uh, your book, Changing Our Minds, is uh, the go-to resource I recommend for folks who are wrestling with these issues um, around sexuality. You know, How do they talk about it? How do they understand it? Um, but if you think about how rapidly our culture and many of our church traditions have altered their perspective on these topics over the last two decades, it's pretty amazing. Um, and yet there's a large swath of the Christian population that does not fit into an open theological perspective on sexuality and identity. From, from an ethical standpoint, how do we talk about sexual sexuality and identity, especially with people who just aren't there? Um, in the in the chapter this time, I, I I don't try to review everything I've ever written about sexuality, um, but I, I I would say I, I do try to to make two fundamental claims. Um, one is that sexuality is a powerful force for good and for ill if misused, and that we do need a moral structure to govern. Uh, adult sexuality, and that moral structure is covenant. And so, so the idea of we're just kind of going to experiment and try different things, and everything's okay as long you know as long as nobody gets hurt or whatever, um, it's too loose for me. And so, in that sense, I I think the book offers a point of connection to people who have a traditional vision. So, to changing our mind, by the way, but but here accepting the diversity that exists in the human community, diversity of sexual orientation, and um, also uh, the transgender reality is a reality. How do we know this? Because the people themselves are demonstrating it in their lives, and because the science um, is, is uh, also confirming this kind of diversity in the, in, in the human family. And so, um, the burden of my ethic is how does the church expand its vision to accept the reality that is there and to incorporate everybody in a covenantal ethic instead of casting sexual and gender minorities, you might say, uh, queer ones out into outer darkness, um, into the community of the excluded, the reviled, and those who are believed to be heading to hell. Um, I have you know, since Changing Our Mind came out in 2014, I have also seen what you're suggesting, tremendous movement, tremendous movement towards acceptance, um, and a still shrinking, but still million strong part of the Christian community that's unable to move. And I think it's fundamentally because they can't seem to read the Bible any differently. And however agonizingly, they feel like they must reject or not bless same-sex people or you know gender non-conforming people, and that's that continues to be a tragedy. Um, I I think that that um, there's a group that is not ever going to change their minds. There are denominations that are going to split over this issue. Um, churches that are going to split. 
but but I believe that the, the progress is real. And for me, full acceptance of everybody um, on the basis of the reality of who they are, inviting all Christians into covenantal framework is going to continue to be my message in this area. Um, I hope that CBF, um, as a community of churches, will be able to, um, to include, you know, the whole range of, of the human beings who are Christians who are in our churches, and that eventually um, this will not be a matter of debate uh, in the CBF family. But other denominations are like the Methodists appear that they're going to split over this issue, and I think that's terribly tragic. Yeah, it's certainly from, from a denominational standpoint, what makes that conversation fascinating for CBF is that the fact that it's not a denomination, right? You know, so in many regards, many people see it because of what we came out of. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's a, it's a, a loose affiliation of, of fellowshipping churches, you know, so how do, is there uniformity there? Um, what, what does that look like, especially around this conversation? Certainly, I think it's something uh, that continues to be part of, of our development as a movement of, of people. Um, but it does. I mean, it just looks like the, the fact that CBF has not tried to be a top-down denomination um, and knows and knows that that's not it's a, it's a loose, fairly loose fellowship of churches in such conditions that ought to be possible for this not to be a uh, a deal breaker. Um, so I hope that's what happens, and um, and I and I think the character of CBF is is in our favor uh, along those lines. So that's good. We're in a new era of uh, the relationship with church and state, especially with the latest iteration of white Christian nationalism, something that certainly has been around in America for, for centuries. Um, when we talk about a, a source of morality around politics and religion, there is a very distinct narrative that many follow and believe about these things. So how do we discuss morality around white Christian nationalism when we can't even agree on the source of authority and, and the truth itself? Um, I'm looking at my, my chapter where church meets state. And what I, what I try to do in that chapter, Andy, is, is, to, um, is to more clearly delineate the, what the, the New Testament says is that you might say the God-given mission of the state and the God-given mission of the church and how different those missions are, and yet, um, and so therefore, there's always the potential of confrontation between church and state, um, and, and yet, there should be some tentative common ground in terms of um, advancing the common good uh, for the well-being of all of our neighbors, right? So, I think that the best uh, tradition of Christian thought about the state uh, is a pretty constrained tradition in which the how, how would we get free of Christian nationalism is we would disentangle our vision of church and state. We'd have a more global vision and not fall into kind of a parochial Americanism, you know, a civil religion where we kind of confuse God, country, church, and state in a big goulash, right? Um, we understand that, I mean, the role of the state essentially is to order 
human community to advance the common good in select areas and to provide security on the domestic and international front. Um, and the role of the church is to, is to uh, follow Jesus in every dimension uh, that we can think of, including in loving our neighbors in the, in the social sphere and not just individually. And so you might say our neighbor love agenda bumps up against the state's kind of common good agenda. And in a healthy functioning state, we ought to be able to cooperate on some things. But that's a long way from from glorifying any nation as God's chosen nation or, or falling all over ourselves to, uh, to conflate Christianity in any nation, whether it's the United States or any other one. Very, very dangerous trends when that happens. Um, the other thing we're also seeing from the research on Christian nationalism in the US is it's also tied to race. And so it's white Christian nationalism, sometimes called ethno-nationalism. And that is one of the most dangerous uh, trends in historic politics and religion that we should stay as far away from as possible. The last thing I, I wanna talk about with you um, is your chapter on ministerial vocation. Um, I think this is a timely conversation, especially for a portion of our audience to serve as paid clergy. Um, you know, between the election of Donald Trump the, the prevalence of white Christian nationalism and the global pandemic, ministers have every reason to leave this calling and not look back. Um, yes. Most ministers are underpaid, overworked, and undervalued. They get up in the pulpit to preach gospel, the gospel prophetically about the issues of our time, only to be railed afterwards in the parking lot conversations and anonymous letters sent to the church office. What words can you give ministers that are trying to model the way to preach with integrity and to care for people with authenticity? Andy, there's a lot of um, passion and, and so much truth in what you're saying. And, you know, you are channeling um, thousands of ministers that, and I've heard from lots of people in the last few years, it has been an excruciating time to be a minister. Um, the, the Trump phenomenon, the COVID phenomenon, the financial challenges. What I try to say in the chapter, I follow the work of, of my friend, Sandra Wheeler, who's a Methodist retired ethicist, who basically says that, that the, the moral vocation of the Christian minister is not just to be a morally good and responsible person, but to offer a moral, morally clear and compelling vision um, and to practice it throughout the range of the ministerial vocation, uh, counseling, preaching, teaching, and leadership. Uh, because the church is not just a religious club, but a community of people who are supposedly committed to following Christ. Um, and so if that's what the church is, then, then the ministerial leadership of churches has a responsibility to help them do that. Um, my word for ministers is, is that if we give up on um, a, a ministry that has moral integrity, but we stay in the job because it's how we make a living, um, there's a 
I'm, you know, my sense is that there's a kind of internal spiritual dying that happens as people say, okay, you know, what the heck, I got to feed my family. I'll just tell these people what they want, stay out of what they don't want me to talk about, collect my paycheck and kind of inwardly resign while keeping my job. I know there are a lot of workers out there in the world who hate their jobs and they do it and they inwardly resign, but they take the paycheck. I think that that's really, really hard to do in ministry because, because of, of what is at stake and, and everything we were taught and trained in about what it means to be a minister. So I would say do the job with integrity as long as you can, where you can. And if you can no longer do that, do anything else. Um, don't feel the need to stay in ministry if it causes you to die spiritually. Um, do something else. I know that's easier said than done, but but I know many people who who actually find themselves spiritually and emotionally healthier if if and when they have found that they cannot do their jobs as ministers with integrity. <laughs> I mean, there are some tactical and strategic things people can do, and I talk about some of this in the chapter. You know, you don't walk into a church in your first year and preach every social justice cause maybe that you have, um, you know, and, you know, and pound people with, with stuff that they, that they can't hear, you know, I mean, there are times and seasons and strategies and, and, you know, picking your spots and now you throw a fastball, now you throw a curveball, you know what I mean? You mix it up. But, but if fundamentally, um, I mean, I, 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 I heard uh, during the 2020 election season that there were ministers who were being pressured if you don't clearly signal your support for donald trump from the pulpit we will fire you well forget that go do anything else if that's what is required same thing on the left um you know we have there's a there's a vocation there's a holy calling and if we cannot pursue that vocation with integrity then it would be better to do anything else than be a minister. It feels like, you know, and I'm not being, gosh, I'm, I hope this isn't being too negative, but it feels like there's a growing ethical dilemma uh, between clergy and congregations that so many people are walking away. And I feel like the writing is on the wall too, that, you know, denominational seminary numbers are down. I think people are just recognizing the commitment to this calling while they uh, they believe and value what God is calling them to. They also value their self, you know, their well-being, their, their care for their family. Um, you know, and it seems like at some point a void or lack of ministers confronting congregations with opening uh, is going to cause some major uh, dilemmas for our congregations. I, I don't think I there's think anything to speak into there or if I'm yeah. just rambling about no. possible connections. Well, you know, um, one place where I've dealt with this is the broader evangelical world where, where the sense that especially predominantly white evangelicalism has gotten kind of ill and, and people leave and, and pastors leave and maybe they're not able to find post-evangelical churches or to create them, um, but they find podcast communities and small groups meeting in their living room and people they have dinner with and in some ways they get to exercise their vocation, uh, but it may not be for pay. But I do think that churches that, um, that are no longer places where uh, 
a minister can exercise vocation with integrity are going to find themselves lacking leaders. And some of those churches may just end up uh, floundering around with interims or end up shutting down. Um, just because a building has church on it doesn't necessarily mean it's the place where, where Jesus following is really happening. Um, and I think ministers just need to remember that we're about Jesus following, helping people do that, you know, and if there are churches that are just not where that can happen, then, then the ministers will leave uh, and maybe the people will leave too. And, but I do believe that other creative expressions of Jesus following are already emerging. Um, and that's where the energy, well, capital S, spirit, that's what I think. So I, I wonder, um, are there, you know, this is a pretty comprehensive Christian ethics introduction. Are there, are there topics that you, you wanted to get to, but just never got to in the book? Yeah, let me say just a few things. Um, the, the book features some new stuff. And, um, and I, I put that early in the book to emphasize whether we read Jesus from below or from a position of privilege has a lot to do with how our ethics gets shaped. And so I think Thurman taught us as far back as 1949 to read Jesus from the perspective of, as he said, those with their backs against the wall. And you might say that that, that leads you to a liberative, justice-oriented ethic um, in a way that I think is really, really important. Um, I, I propose in the middle of the book kind of uh, five norms or central principles that I think ought to be carried by us in our hearts, in our lives, and into every issue. And those are truthfulness, sacredness, justice, love, and forgiveness. And so um, these used to be called middle axioms, but ethics is not just about I've got an issue, now I'm going to try to apply some Bible verses to it. It's also about broader norms. I would also add covenant, which works its way through the book too. So truthfulness, sacredness, justice, love, forgiveness, and covenant as centering norms in ethics, I think is helpful. Um, I have a chapter on patriarchy. Uh, this issue has flared up a lot in recent U.S. discussion around books like uh, Beth Barr's book on uh, complementarianism and Kristen Dumay's book on Jesus and John Wayne. Um, basically, the fight against patriarchy uh, remains live, and so I have a chapter on that. Um, I have a, a rather painful personal chapter on ethics at the end of life that is motivated by my experience of the death of my parents. Um, that, I think, is a good breakthrough chapter for me. And then in the end, I have a chapter called Why Following Jesus is So Hard. And it's basically a, a sobering look at all of the factors in us and outside us that lead us astray. And so you might say, Andy, that my, my vision of the Christian life has become more realist, less optimistic over the 25 years since I began, um, because I think the factors that lead Christians astray are very, very powerful, and we need to account for them. Uh, and that the, the path of following Jesus is a narrow road. It's a hard road, but it's also a deeply rewarding one. And so I think people will be interested just to hear that as a kind of a, a motif of this book. 
All right, last question, and probably this is the most important one. Um, you wrote a book on Christian ethics, but then you put the image of a smolderingly handsome guy on the front cover. Um, <laughs> it, it, isn't this a bit of a moral contradiction? <laughs> um, I am going to write that down and take that home, and we'll have a big laugh about smolderingly handsome. I love that, Andy. Thank you. Um, uh, the publisher, uh, Front Edge, wanted uh, to put my picture on the cover. I fought them hard, um, but they said, we think this is a, like a, a career work for you. And it's kind of, they also, I'm sitting on a bench. It's kind of like, they think that the tone of the book is like conversational and come and sit with me on this bench here and let's talk about ethics. Um, but I promise you, there will never ever be another book with a picture of me on the cover. I promise you that. I mean, you're working on the front cover. You've got the power piece watch there. Um, hair's looking good. The beer's looking great. Uh, <laughs> I, I want to send this to your office to get it signed. Uh, uh, I'll sign it right there on the cover for you if you'd like. And yeah. you can make a poster out of it or something if you want, Andy. All right. Ab absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, well, our guest is Dr. David Gushy. The book is Introducing Christian Ethics. If you want to stay connected with David, visit davidgushy.com. David, it's always great to talk with you. Uh, thank you for calling us to follow the narrow road of the covenant fidelity to Christ, the hard journey that ends in everlasting life in the kingdom of God. Thank you for having me. Uh, and thank you for, you know, for digging around in the book. I hope that it, it proves to be a good resource for a lot of people. Before we wrap up our episode, we need to tell you about one more of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. BSK is excited to once again be sponsoring CBF's upcoming General Assembly in Dallas, Texas. Stop by our booth in the exhibit hall. Join us as we honor our 2022 Addie David Award recipient at Baptist Women in Ministries Gathering or attend the workshop being led by Reverend Erica Whitaker, BSK's Associate Director for Institute for Black Studies. We'd love to connect with you at this special event. Learn more about BSK at bsk.edu. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF Podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platform. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Check out cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. And, uh, oh yeah, I think we mentioned that you should uh, join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support. 